Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. No change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. WORT 89.9 FM Listener Sponsored Community Radio Madison, Wisconsin And hello, welcome to A Public Affair I am Esti Dinor Before we start today's show I just want to uh, voice my excitement at the fact that some of the 240 Israeli and other hostages are coming home, as are some of the many Palestinian children and women held indefinitely in Israeli prisons. And I hope and pray that these exchanges continue, the ceasefire becomes permanent, Gaza is rebuilt quickly, and a permanent political solution to the madness is reached. Hopefully that is um, where we're going. We'll be talking again about Gaza next week. Today, though, we are talking about um, an article that I read um, in Wired magazine titled Generative AI and the Future of Information Warfare. To um, talk about information warfare and its future, with, we have with us Bill Marcelino. He's a senior behavioral scientist and RAND, professor of text analytics at the Pardew RAND Graduate School, and lecturer at Carnegie Mellon University and Johns Hopkins University. He was trained as a sociolinguist and corpus linguist, and at RAND, he develops AI applications, including RAND Lex, which is RAND's propriety text analytics suite. Marcelino teaches text analytics and natural language processing, NLP, as well as qualitative research methods. His research focuses on information as a warfighting function, AI technology application and acquisition for DOD, military resilience and misinformation, disinformation and conspiracy theories over social media. He also helps lead RAND's AI development in specialty LLMs and LM-enabled applications. Bill has served as a U.S. Marine tank officer and enlisted rifleman. He received his PhD in rhetoric from Carnegie Mellon University. Hi, Bill. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Essie. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me on. And, you know, just reading your bio, <laughs> I realized I, there are some things that I just don't understand. So let, let, let me start by asking you some things about who you are. What is a corpus linguist? That's a great question. So um, you've probably heard of someone like um, Noam Chomsky. Early yes. linguistics was kind of philosophical, like literally coming out of philosophy departments and very notional. You'd like make up things in your head and sort of analyze language by making up your own data. Corpus linguists are a different uh, sort of discipline, and the idea is to get a large corpus or a large body of text. So I'll get millions of examples of text, you know, like lots and lots of um, written material, transcripts, and then look for patterns in real data at scale to try and understand how language works. So it's a very different, much more empirical approach to language. So it sounds to me, to the degree that I understand AI, that basically it's a human attempt to be AI. <laughs> Does that make sense, what I just said? Yeah, yeah. So that's what's kind of exciting right now about um, the current so generative AI. So generative AI is basically um, uh, algorithms and models that can take in uh, human language data, like um, a sentence, like draw me a picture of a little boy holding a red balloon and turn that into something else. And so one kind of generative AI is something like um, text to image. So if you've seen Mid Journey or Dali, 
you've seen an AI model that's learned two things. It's learned how to follow the rhythms of language and sort of represent usefully um, text like a picture of a boy with a red balloon. But it's also learned to see billions of pictures and label them with English words and to have a shared space. So when you put in those words, it will generate a picture of a boy with a red balloon. And then a little bit similar and maybe even more kind of uh, exciting in some ways are large language models. And basically they've been shown trillions and trillions of words, but trillions of words in actual like usage. So they've scoured the internet and they've read everything on the internet and they kind of know the probability distributions of language. They kind of know if I say, you know, not all heroes wear, it knows capes, but all villains do because it's seen the natural cadence of language so many times. And as a result, it can read and write in ways that seem very, very human. And so you just answered another question that I had is what LLMs are. So that's large language model. Yes. Okay. And what is natural language processing? Uh, it's the field. So uh, AI has is like the big umbrella term. And within that's an, uh, a thing called machine learning, teaching machines to do stuff. And within machine learning, um, all of the things that are about um, sort of either generating natural language, you know, ordinary talk, you know, or understanding it. So natural language generation and natural language understanding. And like we're using natural language. We're not following some weird rule set or a code. We're just talking. Um, so it's a kind of a subfield within AI and machine learning. And um, it's exploding right now. Um, it's powerful stuff. Pretty cool. Also a little scary too, though. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like really both. So before we get to the main topic here, what is what is RAND, the place that you work? So uh, RAND is a public policy research institute. So we are one of the U.S. government's federally funded research and development corporations. Basically, instead of hiring an extra thousand uh, PhD scientists to do work as government workers, the U.S. government has these long-standing relationships with a couple different nonprofit companies. So RAND is a nonprofit uh, research facility, and we do um, a lot of the U.S. government's research, in particular for the U.S. Army, for the uh, U.S. Air Force, for the Department of Defense, and for Homeland Security. We also do um, uh, research that's rather than kind of ongoing, it's more like ad hoc funded for grants in health, um, social equity and well-being, and education. Okay, that sounds like such a wide, um, wide spectrum from from the army to um, equity and such. Yeah. Um, I, I imagine there's different people working in these different fields, or is it all of you work on everything? How 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 is it? What, That's how actually. Does it work? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I, I think, you know, I'm biased. I like Rand a lot. I'm very grateful to be there. But I think our specialty is this incredibly diverse, multidisciplinary approach. So, uh, for example, um, I'm on a, uh, a grant project working for the National Infectious Disease Institute. And we have a multi-year grant to figure out, understand how did medical innovation, useful medical innovation, spread in the medical community during COVID. The idea being, hey, if we can find pathways where medical innovation spreads quickly and you know, emergency uh, physicians and practitioners can get, can get like new practices quickly, how do you do that? How do you replicate it for the next time there's a, um, uh, an emergency or a pandemic? And so I've got uh, you know, cl clinicians on the team, uh, software programmers, I'm the linguistics and NLP person. Um, there's, this, there's an amazing uh, range of like different disciplines on this. We have an epidemiologist, a sociologist, and together we bring a pretty robust set of perspectives and methods as well to solve a pretty important problem. Does that make sense uh -huh. at all? Yeah, actually, I'm thinking, again, before we get to our main issue today, I just heard last night on the BBC um, about an effort that's going on in Mozambique where 
a lot of people have tuberculosis, but mm. there's no, there's not enough um, healthcare providers, and there's no radiologists basically. So um, these these Western people, I'm not sure where they came from, but um, they are there with a machine that is an artificial in intelligence machine, which can read. Um, can read the um, the symptoms that that people have, and is able to say with amazing uh, accuracy whether they have TB or not, and then they can be treated. So, um, obviously, I don't know all the details, but but that was fascinating to me that this is one way that AI can be used for good. Yeah, and that's actually a really good example of where one of the benefits of AI would be in that things that might take human labor, and like you said, you know, maybe to serve uh, that country's needs, you need three, uh, you need like eight hundred radiologists, but you don't have them. But if you have machines that have been trained on images, and so rather than reading symptoms that they're probably doing, I think is they're reading the imagery from X-rays and able to do a diagnosis because. That uh, model, the, the algorithm behind that AI system, has seen millions and millions and millions of x-rays that have all been labeled with conditions. And so it's using computer vision to figure out, oh, yeah, I see the pattern here. Healthy lungs, not healthy lungs, whatever it is. This is TB, for example. So the ability to teach a machine to kind of replicate something that human beings do and to do it at scale, do it accurately, is pretty powerful. Um, and I think there's probably two sides to it. You know, one side to it is it's wonderful to think that we might have, you know, better medicine or we might teach a model, for example, just like we teach a model to read English or to read, you know, Mandarin or to read German. We could teach a model to read protein sequences. So the idea of a machine that operates, you know, a thousand times faster than human beings to, to look through protein sequences and find novel drugs and treatments. It's very exciting. The idea of a machine that can write millions of uh, fake profile posts to try and trick people into thinking there's real human beings saying this, that's kind of scary. Yeah, and, and that is, I think, what we're talking about when we're talking about information as a war-fighting function, correct? Yeah, that's part of it, right, is these are called information operations. And in particular, our, our uh, recent publication was based on a lot of writing from um, scientists employed by and affiliated with the People's Liberation Army in China. And they've laid out a very detailed plan for how they plan to use kind of weaponized AI to create fake personas at scale on the Internet and try and um, they call it public opinion struggle. They want to give the sort of synthetic appearance, make it look real online, that all your neighbors think we should do X or do Y and see if they can influence other countries. So um, explain how that happens and why we should be concerned about that. Um, and I want to make a caveat, by the way. Um, we know that lots of adversary nations engage on pretty wide-scale um, interference in elections or disinformation commands. So, for example, in my prior research, um, during COVID, uh, I and my colleagues found very clear evidence that um, both China and Russia were um, producing and spreading false news stories that suggested dangerous things. Like, for example, one of the narratives was that you should not allow contact tracing software to be downloaded onto your onto your phone because it was going to be used by either the government or by uh, Bill Gates to track your movements physically and to be rounded up in case you were uh, to become a dissident. So also they spread disinformation saying that um, vaccines were dangerous and if you got vaccinated, you uh, could have your DNA changed. So that's an example of an information operation. Um, Certainly bad intents there, you know, a willingness to try and like harm people, to try and make, you know, the U.S. or the West uh, less resilient and more vulnerable to a pandemic. Um, but I would also point out it's not clear exactly what the real world effects are. 
just because you tell people something or spread, you know, uh, disinformation, medical disinformation or whatever, we're not sure exactly how much effect it actually has in the real world. So that's an important well, caveat. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about vaccinations, for example, because um, whoever um, came up with um, the information or misinformation or disinformation, you know, depending on your opinion, right, um, has been very successful in getting a lot of people, definitely a lot of Americans to... Um, not get vaccinated, not let the kids get vaccinated. Um, I believe that Florida, where the governor himself um, was anti-vaccine person, had a um, significantly larger number of uh, deaths, and yet even healthcare people were opening um, clinics for people who did not want vaccination, did not want the uh, proven treatment, they wanted, I can't think of the name right now, but the horse um, medicine instead. Yeah, ivermectin. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that, I think, was an extremely successful campaign. What, what, tell us more. What, what do you know about well, that? So, so certainly there was an enormous amount of bad medical information floating around, right? So if you, if you heard information that mRNA vaccinations would change your DNA, if you heard that COVID was a hoax and it wasn't actually happening, if, if you got told that instead of getting vaccination, you should take Paxlovid, you could take ivermectin to cure yourself, all of those things, that's all bad information. Um, it's not clear, though, whether people believed these disinformation narratives and then decided not to get vaccinated, or if they were already members of groups that were politically polarized and, and were doubling down on their group's beliefs and then pointing to the disinformation. So the, the cause and effect part isn't really clear whether this information is a symptom or a cause. Does that make sense? Yeah, is there a way to find out? That's a really good question. Um, so it's probably one of the biggest questions in this area. Um, one of my PhD students who just graduated, really proud of him, um, is actually a, an Air Force officer. So the Air Force sends um, three or four graduates from their uh, Air Force Academy to RAND for a three-year, very intensive PhD program before they even go to the Air Force to like fly airplanes or whatever. And he had a great, uh, interesting um, uh, uh, project where he compared two states that were demographically very similar and then compared how much disinformation exposure people got on social media as a kind of a dosage. So what was the dosage of disinformation and then compared waste rates for, um, uh, for uh, uh, the vaccinations. And so what he essentially showed was small effect when you look at, you know, two really similar states that the real difference, call it difference in different study, uh, the real difference was how much disinformation people got exposed to, really a marginal difference. It looks like people who were kind of disposed already to be populists and to feel like they couldn't trust the government were ready to seize on this. Um, so very small, but, but some effects, and, and we'd also point out too, though, that even small effects sometimes at the margin can be just enough to tip things. So there are tipping effects or even very small things, kind of like it's like the feather that moves the scales when they're balanced. Mm -hmm. So what do we know about the 2016 um, election campaigns? I mean, at the time, there was a lot of talk that the Russians were helping Trump. Do we know anything certain about this? Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, there, there were a number of uh, accounts physically generate, you know, emanating out of St. Petersburg, Russia, and that is the location of the Internet Research Agency or the IRA. And the IRA is a Kremlin-sponsored and affiliated group where basically shift workers come in, and these shift workers go online. And they do very high quality information operations. 
They have an explicit theory uh, called reflexive control theory, where they try and figure out what are like the two groups at odds in any society and how can we get them to fight each other. And so in America, it's you know naturally progressives and conservatives. So you have the same person might be on a shift for eight hours and they might be managing 30 accounts that pretend to be progressives and 30 accounts pretending to be um, uh, conservative and sometimes uh, man in the middle accounts that appear to be you know, in between, but are actually trying to push a disinformation narrative. And so absolutely clear that they did this work. Um, uh, U.S. law enforcement and the intelligence community uh, definitely tracked down uh, at least 800 of those accounts and documented them, and that day is available. And they were definitely doing work on Twitter and other social media places, mostly to set us against each other. And so, and we believe it rained in our research that while they may have favored Trump, the real goal isn't any one person. It's just getting other countries at odds internally and more divisive. So their goal is less, I want Trump in, although they probably did prefer him in. It's more like we want America polarized and hating each other. Okay, well, um, my guest today is Bill Mussolino. He's uh a senior behavioral scientist at RAND, professor of text analytics at the Party RAND Graduate School and lecturer at Carnegie Mellon University and Johns Hopkins University. And we are talking about generative artificial intelligence and the future of information warfare. You are welcome to join the conversation. Um, we do not have a receptionist today, so you must, if you call the regular number 608-256-2001, you must also uh, use extension 9, or you can use the direct line, which is 608-467-5627. And I must say, Bill, uh, reading just the first line of your um bio again you sound like a very busy person huh <laughs> i am and it's it's an exciting time you know i've been uh, working in the uh, natural language processing field for the last 12 years and uh try to build systems that are more usable more understandable um, i believe very strongly in having humans in the loop i don't want to push a button to get an answer i want to push a button and then see things and understand them and have human beings do interpretation and now, uh, with generative AI, is really exciting times. Um, great power, but also real worries. And, you know, a moment ago, we were talking about how Russia employed skilled workers to do their information operations. The kind of the challenge now is it's always been one of two choices. You do what Russia did, which is pay people to do very good work by human beings, but it's limited in scale, or do what China's always done which is have very low quality automated bots, which are pretty easy to tell they're not human beings. They're very simple. But generative AI is so powerful, you're losing that trade-off now. You can train a model to do human level work, make decisions, have a kind of agency, and do it at scale. So the cost versus quality um, choice has been resolved now by generative AI. I can have amazing quality uh, at cost. So, I mean, you, you say it's exciting and scary. To me, it sounds more scary than exciting because I'm wondering, like, even in just a really short time, how are we ever going to know or be able to discern between what is true and what isn't? Yeah, and I, I, I would say between what is synthetic and what is, you know, not synthetic, but yeah, and I don't so, know. So explain that. Actually, that is a question that I have for you. What does synthetic mean in this so, context? So up until pretty recently, if you saw someone online, so you're on Facebook, you know, as you know, I do jujitsu and I yeah. see someone online. They do jujitsu also, too. And they post pictures of themselves doing jujitsu and uh, his picture of we had dinner last night at a nice restaurant. And, oh, what about the game last week? Whatever. And, you know, two years ago you knew that's a real person. Only a human being is going to like speak in, you know, sort of culturally and locally um, appropriate English. They're going to make Pittsburgh jokes from Pittsburgh, like Yinzers. 
They're going to say things from the California that make sense. They're going to have pictures of themselves. And you knew that was a real, they were authentic. But now, very trivial to have a large language model that has been trained to generate um, messages to go like, oh, wow, go Bengals. Oh, I can't, we lost last night. That's easy to do. And to have text-to-image models that make photorealistic images of fake people. So now that person I want to maybe be friends with on Facebook, I don't know if they're real or not or authentic or not. So yes, the issue now is as we go into the, into, uh, the, the next few years, I think increasingly it will be impossible to tell what is synthetic and what is authentic. And I don't know what the answer to that is. It's a really scary proposition to me. Yeah, that is, it is very scary. And so let's talk about it in the context of warfare. So, for example, um, you know, Israel has this uh, war on Gaza right now. It's it's on a um, little bit of a ceasefire. And hopefully, like I said, it, that will continue. But how has Israel, which of course is very, um, very developed in, in these uh, fields, how has it used um, synthetic information or, you know, AI uh, warfare to its benefit? Um, I mean, now, in real time. So um, the only verified cases I'm aware of right now of generative AI being used um, by a nation state actor to do information operations is after the um, the wildfires in Hawaii, in Maui, um, the uh, China, or what appear very um, strongly to be Chinese-sponsored uh, accounts, were putting up messages across social media, including generative AI images that were fakes, purporting to show that the wildfires were started by the U.S. military because they were using w- weather weapons, <laughs> which aren't real, by the way. So... Um, I can't tell you beyond that of a definite case yet. And my guess is um, it's not ready for deployment yet. So when I started with at, at RAND, you know, sort of building models and working on this kind of stuff on, on the inside uh, to sort of demonstrate and pilot things, um, it's, it's not a trivial thing. Um, but if you have resources, it's a straightforward engineering problem, I think, and a, a software engineering and sort of mechanical problem. And um, I, I would personally imagine that in the next year, good, uh, skillful, hard-to-detect automated systems that are end-to-end may be online. So I wouldn't expect them to be like really ready for prime time yet, but coming soon. Mm-hmm. Well, we have um, a caller for you, Bill. Uh, Mike, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, in regards to what you guys were talking about earlier, the uh, the COVID vaccine misinformation, um, last year, um, the bivalent COVID vaccine number five, only 17% of the population took it. That must be so frustrating for you, Bill, that the misinformation um, that 83% said no. So they're believing the misinformation. This year's vaccine, which has been out already over two months, only 7% of the population have taken it, and it's recommended for everyone. 93% have said no. I mean, that must be so frustrating for someone who's so smart as you that understands this, that these misinformation, 93% believe it. Thanks for your call. So, um, so Mike makes a good point, and that is that it's uh, sort of tragic, right, that we have lots of people that don't trust, you know, good medical information and are making what are probably, you know, ill-informed and really dangerous uh, uh, health decisions. And you know, certainly mis- and disinformation plays a part in this. At, at RAND, we've described a larger phenomenon called truth decay, where essentially for several decades now, there's been declining confidence in the U.S., uh, in authority sources, in the U.S. government. 
we've kind of lost our share sort of facts. And now sort of everyone, whether you're a progressive or a conservative, tends to have your own set of facts. So this kind of effective polarization and general decline in sort of belief and trust in traditional authority sources, that's an even bigger, that's, it's part of a big, big problem. I don't know the answer to this, and we've done a little work at RAND on this polarization question, and I, I think it's a really a pressing issue, right? Like, we're neighbors, we have a lot in common. <laughs> like, for, for all that divides us, right, as a nation, you know, we all want our kids to be safe. We all probably want to have good schools. Everyone likes good roads. Probably no one wants violent crime in the neighborhood. We have a lot in common. And finding ways to get beyond um, hating and distrusting other people because they're different, that's a really serious problem. And that's one, if I had to pick, pick any public policy problem at a high level, that's the one I'm most concerned about. Yeah, and... Um... I mean, I understand why, right? Um, a lot of people, I think, 50s, 60s, or, you know, in the 60s, people um, started really not believing the government in, in large numbers. But before that, there was a lot of trust that the government is good. It wants the good of the people. And then, um, so besides the hippie movement that was... Um, that, that was rebelling against a lot of different things. Uh, we also learned about all kinds of horrible things that the CIA has done and the FBI has done. And, and since then we learn about other agencies. And um, so how, so I, I, I guess one thing I can say is I don't understand why this also reflects on medical care so that's one question, but also how is it even possible to get people to trust again in, um, in, in this whole idea of a state and, and that the state is a good thing and, and that it's good for us? And by the way, you, you raise a really important issue, right, which is there can be good reasons not to trust the state, right? Like. Yeah. The U.S. government has not always done like the right thing. So, you know, being, uh, you know, critical probably makes a lot of sense. Um, this, this larger thing, though, where it's not just the government. We don't believe doctors are scientists anymore. The prestige of science has declined. Um, the public views of education have declined, and they mostly map on to region and class and ideology. And so... Um, uh, there's a really fundamental human quality called, sometimes called groupishness. But basically human beings are really good at defining themselves by being a member of a group and defined against out members, the, the outside people who are not part of the group, right? So it's really, really common for human beings to be altruistic, generous, and charitable in group. Um, you can see extreme cases of that, say, in U.S. military members, right? Like U.S. Marines, like the, the, the culture I came out of, it would not be strange to jump on a grenade to save the lives of the people around you. That's an extreme example of interior groupishness altruism. But, you know, you see it more broadly, right? When, you, when someone from your party, political party, gets caught doing something bad, you go, oh, well, whatever, that was bad, but, you know, whatever. But when the other guy does it, <laughs> it's like proof of how evil they are. Right. So yeah. we really attribute a lot of like mischief and evil to the other people and not make too much to our own. And that's mapping out now to everything. So um, when issues become polarized. So, for example, early in the pandemic, it became a political issue, polarized either for or against uh, former President Trump. And the moment that happened, I think medicine went out the window and it became a very political issue. Yeah, which is so strange. So, um, so we're talking about the ability to create a lot of different accounts um, that are there basically to influence a lot of different people in countries that um, you, you know, whoever is doing it consider as um, enemy. How expensive is it? to do that and uh, therefore who can do it? That's a great question. Um, and, and bear in mind too, that all the time new models come out, 
we're gaining technical ability to make it easier to train these models. So um, there's been a number of technical innovations um, since, for example, January of this year uh, that have made it like increasingly easier and cheaper to train models um, by, uh, by multiple factors. So just bearing that in mind, it's a moving target. Um, like right now, for example, on my consumer Mac that I have in my house, I'm running a large language model. It's called uh, Vicuna, 13 billion uh, size, 13 billion parameters. So for, for scale or comparison, chat GPT uh, 3.5, that's uh, about 175 billion parameters. I have a much smaller model, but this model I have running right now on my consumer hardware has been trained to talk like a person with social media. So it's pretty good that one thing. And on my little laptop, my Mac laptop that I bought for, you know, whatever, consumer level, I could probably manage 20 or 30 fake persona, um, both their text and generating images. So it gives you an idea of the scale. So, you know, I don't think it's more than a few hundred thousand dollars, uh, maybe certainly less than a million dollars. If I was to collect, let's say I wanted to go ahead and do a Taiwan, Taiwanese campaign and to build, um, get data samples of Taiwanese uh, people on social media, to build sort of um, profiles of them, to train the models, to generate the engineering around uh, a system of models, probably under a million dollars. So for a nation state, that's nothing. But maybe even for some large non-state actors, I mean, like, there's plenty of people for whom, you know, $800,000 would be a trivial amount of money. Yeah, yeah. So... Um... Just to make sure, Bill, am I talking to you or am I talking to something <laughs> on your computer? <laughs> that, that's a really good, that's a, that's a great question. So a couple of things. So one, um, it's not uh, a computer because you're seeing me um, in real time on video. And currently, text to video is not anywhere near as good as, as text to image. So you'd okay. be able to tell. Right now it's clumsy, but also generation speed. So on my, on my little you know, computer, on my Mac talk, my Mac laptop, laptop, um, my, my robots, my bots can generate about um, 17 words a second. So it can't control too many people at one time at natural uh, speech lengths. Um, so you made a good point. There are, are limits and you need some horsepower to really simulate a person and also technology we don't have yet. But you know what though? If you asked me in two years, one, one year, I don't know. I, I've given up predictions because the stuff moves so fast. But at some time, yeah, I can imagine a real-time bot that passes a Turing test. And by a Turing test, it's the proposed by Alan Turing, a kind of a foundational figure in, in machine learning and AI. The idea being, could I tell from interactions, is this a real person or not? And I think we're getting close to the point where it would be hard to figure that out, or harder. So if there's the ability to do all these amazing things and in the near future, even more amazing things. Is there also the possibility to build programs that will be able to detect what is what and therefore help us know that I am actually talking to a real person. Uh, I'm getting information from a credible source and so on and so forth. It's a good question. Um, it's hard for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, in many ways, it's like an arms race. So, for example, um, the current models that are being used to um, generate these hyper-realistic images that, to the naked eye, often you can't tell, um, they use uh, a thing called diffusion modeling. Basically, it's borrowed from physics. It's the diffusion of gas in a space or the diffusion of heat in a room, for example. And they've copied the physics of diffusion to learn how do I turn noise into a picture? They basically turned pictures into like heat noise over and over again, and then reversed it. It's amazing, it's an amazing trick. Well, just as you're getting the ability to detect those through a thing called Dyer, basically kind of a diffusion detector, ju just a month ago, MIT released a new model based instead on Poisson diffusion for electromagnetic particles. Whole new paradigm. It's even better than diffusion modeling. I don't know how you can detect that. So there's this leapfrogging where the minute we get good at detecting, a new technology comes up for generation. And that arms race seems, at least for the moment, very much in favor of the offense. 
Yeah, you know, I actually I read just last night again, I read an interview with a woman who was responsible for um, safety. I can't remember the actual um, name. Uh, at Twitter, who yeah. um, left a couple of years ago. And one thing she said is that part of um, why... So so she was questioned about what happened um, on January 6th and why Twitter didn't, wasn't faster to, you know, not basically support it. They didn't intend to support it, but but just... Uh, by allowing all the tweets to go through, they supported it. And and she said that for years she's been asking for the tools, for the right programs to be able to detect things like that. But they were always so busy uh, developing new stuff and being ahead of others that they never gave her those tools. So is is that basically what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, so one is, so I think there's two things there. One is, are the tools available? And that's an open question because these advancements are so fast, it can be hard to be up on the right tools. Although, you know, too, we have a lot of smart folks in the world. In the U.S., there are a lot of really smart engineers. I, I, I think, you know, investing in smart detection is, is a is probable or possible route. But the other question you're raising is, what are the incentives of platforms? You know, so if you think about Twitter, Twitter's current model is, getting the most accounts possible to therefore sell advertising at the highest rate. It is in their interest to have as many accounts open as possible. It is not in their interest to get rid of fake accounts. Same for Facebook, for example. So until we change the incentives, you're going to be asking businesses, hey, to be good citizens, would you please hurt yourselves economically? And that's usually a bad bet. And that's what we're seeing at OpenAI right now, correct? Can can you explain what's going on there? Sure. So, uh, and, and well, I can tell you my read from the news because I'm not there mm-hmm. at OpenAI. I don't, I don't have an insider track. But essentially, what happened was a kind of a power showdown for the direction of the of the company. Now, OpenAI was founded as a, a nonprofit, sort of meant to be like like doing good in the world. And under Sam Altman's leadership, it's really been more like about monetizing. So about how do we how do we expand our usage, expand our models, monetize our services, partner with Microsoft and other people to go ahead and offer, you know, high dollar services. And so eventually there's a showdown between the board, which was more on the, you know, do good, less about profit uh, perspective and Sam Alden, but also a lot of the people in the company that are working there who are more on the, let's monetize this, let's grow it, let's, let's charge ahead. And I believe a flashpoint was a new potential model, uh, QSTAR. And we don't have details on QSTAR, although I've read a lot of the papers from one of the main uh, engineers behind QSTAR. And it appears to be about improved math reasoning ability. And that's really important because um, uh, the current generation of models these transformer models are amazing on what they're trained to do, but they have a real difficulty going outside of what they've seen in training to do something really novel. Human beings, that's right now, we are way better than them because I can do things and you can do things that are totally novel. You can figure stuff out. The current transformer architecture is really limited to I can solve problems or do things that I've seen during training. Well, the idea is if you can do math, if you can solve the kind of generalizable problems like, hey, I have X many whatevers, and you take away X, you take away Y, what's left over? If you can do math, maybe you can start generalizing to more things. So the concern is, is this maybe a pathway to much more powerful and potentially dangerous AI? And I think that was the 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 flashpoint if, if that makes sense yeah well it's interesting that as i remember google also started as um a first do no wrong right and uh became just this humongous corporation that is all about uh making profit as apparently is happening with open ai now and before all of this sam alterman was running all over the world telling uh world leaders that that they should um, find ways to limit what he's doing because he's afraid it'll 
destroy the world and yet he keeps you know doing the stuff that might destroy the world so um i don't know that you have answer to that but you probably have done more thinking than me about it well so um i, I will say this by the way you know at least google has so, so google's actually part of alphabet so alphabet is a collection of companies and one of them is jigsaw and jigsaw is the part that's designed to do no harm i've actually done work with it before we helped build uh, with them, uh, better models for detecting conspiracy theories and actually understanding how they function rhetorically. So I'd say at the very least, Google has one company, Jigsaw, making a good faith effort to try and like make the world better. So at least they're trying somewhat. Um, but on this larger question, right, so our company is going to lean forward into AI and do things that are destructive. And I think of two kinds of threats. One of them is this, like you said, end the world, like existential threats, right? Is there going to be an AI like Skynet that like, you know, takes over the whole world? That's a really big question. It's a downstream one. I don't know about that one. I focus on the more immediate threats, which are, can AI right now help bad actors do more bad stuff or new bad stuff? And I'll give you two examples right now. Um, current generation LLMs, are really well suited to aiding cyber criminals. They can be de deployed to do like brute force work. Like basically here's an LLM. I've taught it on cyber hacks and cyber offense. Hey, machine run 24 seven and go after this website or even swarms. All of you go after these sites and just do your, do your best. So one, um, cyber criminals and cyber crime organizations are well positioned to leverage current technology to do a lot more cybercrime. That's scary to me. And that's not the future or sci-fi, that's today. A second thing would be um, illicit drug manufacturing or bioweapons manufacturing, chem weapons manufacturing. Uh, Carnegie Mellon University has shown how existing LLMs, when hooked up to technical databases on chemicals, can learn how to make drugs or chemical weapons and then run a chemical the synthesis bench on their own. What it does is, I don't know how to make drugs, but I can deploy a model. They can learn how to do it and make drugs. I mean, I wouldn't personally, I, I hate drugs, but like <laughs> a bad actor could. So I think these immediate threats should get attention as well. Yeah. So um, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking fairly recently, I took a two hour um, online security class, right? And um, some some of what was taught that I know already and some was new to me, but as, as I listen to you, I'm thinking this is on such a low level of um, what is actually available right now to people who know how to do it. And I also think as, again, as I listen to you or as I read some of this stuff, there's so much I don't understand, right? There's words I don't know. Um, there's concepts that um, I, I never thought about and I don't know how to think about them. And I'm relatively knowledgeable and, you know, kind of living in the world, but I think, you know, probably a lot more people have no idea that this is even happening, right? But we keep living online. Um, we have so little time. I wish I could talk to you another hour, but um, what about that? So it's a good question. Um, I, I call that like AI fluency and lots of people need it. You know, if you're making business decisions, you should kind of understand what, what's possible, not possible. Uh, Congress members, you know, we, want our, we want our political leaders to be AI fluent enough and you're right. This stuff's complicated. Like I'm, I'm in it all day long, every day. And I'm like, still like, wow, like mind blown, you know, and it's confusing. <laughs> it's hard. It's very yeah. demanding. So I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, I think about educators. So I, you know, I'm a scientist, but I also teach. I really care about education. I'm passionate about teaching, about pedagogy. And I don't want schools. How about this? It's a very high stakes decision for a school to decide. I want to catch kids using AI and punish them. Or I want to change our pedagogy and our teaching so that kids can use AI productively. And I don't know which we're going to go in the U.S. education, but that's a really big decision. Yeah. 
Okay, Bill, we have three minutes left, and I have about 50 more questions, which I, th I think each of them will bring 50 more. Uh, it's kind of an AI situation, huh? That um, Yeah. Each question brings many more questions, and um, God knows where we'll end up. But in these uh, three, two and a half minutes, what, what do you think is the most important thing to leave our listeners with today? Um, so uh, one is... I don't think that AI doomerism or AI enthusiasm makes a lot of sense. There are people who are like full steam ahead, forget about, you know, any risks. That doesn't seem very thoughtful to me. And then other people are like, well, we're doomed. You can't do it. That also seems problematic as well, right? Like you can't hold back. Like, and two, like for these, for these um, AI models, um, smaller open source models are across the world now. They've been released everywhere. That genie will never go back in the bottle. So I think we probably have to have some sort of middle ground where we think about risks, mitigate risk. We also acknowledge this is powerful technology. It's going to be used and ask ourselves, how do we use it well? A second thing is, how do we address a potential fifth industrial revolution thoughtfully? Like, this could mean a lot of disruption economically. I would rather we proactively think about what does it mean when lots and lots of jobs shift and get lost and be prepared for it rather than backtread when things are, are going wrong economically and we're having real difficulty. Um, and then also, too, you know, historically, when there have been industrial revolutions, capital has leapt ahead. The wealthy have gotten much, much wealthier and labor has been left behind. Now, eventually labor catches up. But in the meantime, you know, do we want 20, 30 years where labor is really, really at risk compared to a massive gain in, in capital and the very, very wealthy. Figuring out some way to ameliorate that would be pretty amazing. I, I can't do that. Maybe you can. Well, I mean, considering what I work with, um, I, I would, you know, like one possibility is the idea that people will have to work maybe 10 hours a week and the rest of the time spend doing what they love and what um, satisfies them, what makes them happy, and uh, we can have peace and love and so on all over the world. Um, do you think that's possible? Um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not an economist uh, or a political economist. Um, I do know that, you know, different, you know, empires and nations historically have done better or worse jobs balancing out, you know, equity, right? Like, if you, you know, if you if you can't make any money, if there's no property rights, that usually doesn't work out so well. But if you have, you know, massive poverty and wealth inequality, that doesn't work out so well. So I can imagine as wealth explodes in the wake of AI and AI explosion, I hope there's some thoughtful way to share that capital expansion in ways that lower social tensions. And yeah, it'd be amazing yeah. if people did more work of the kind they love and like less drudgery work and like had more leisure time. That'd be amazing. So yeah. I will vote for you yeah. for president, okay? <laughs> okay, thank you. Bill Marcelino is a senior behavioral scientist at RAN, professor of text analytics at the Party RAN Graduate School, lecturer at Carnegie Mellon University and Johns Hopkins University. Shall we talk again, Bill? This was so interesting. Whenever you want to, okay? Thank you so All much. All right, thank you so much. And thank you to Jade and Samer. I'm Esti Dinor. Next week is the pledge drive and we have an amazing show lined up for you. Please think about what you can give us. Bye-bye.